welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast, made with Zencaster. I am your host, Dr. Justin Miller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. On today's episode, we're going to be talking about sexual fluidity, which describes the capacity for individuals to experience unexpected shifts in their sexual identity and expression over time. We'll be exploring what we know about how common sexual fluidity is and why some people seem more likely to experience it than others. We're also going to dive into the concept of gender fluidity. What does it mean to be gender fluid and how is it similar to or different from being non-binary or transgender? Also, how do sexual fluidity and gender fluidity intersect? We're going to unpack all of this today with Dr. Lisa Diamond, a professor of psychology and gender studies at the University of Utah. For over 25 years, she has studied the development and expression of gender and sexuality across the life course. She is author of the incredible book, Sexual Fluidity, and co-editor of the first-ever APA Handbook of Sexuality and Psychology. She has published over 130 articles and book chapters and has received numerous awards for her work. This is going to be an amazing conversation that you won't want to miss, and we're going to dive right into it after this short break. Hi, I'm Venus from the Venus Cuckoldress podcast. Dating is hard enough as it is, but when you're trying to find a partner for a one-sided open relationship where she gets to have extra fun and they both love it that way, it's even harder. I'm happy to announce there's finally a matchmaking service for singles who would like a loving cuckolding relationship. It's called Venus Connections. It's totally safe and completely private. Everything's behind a privacy wall. There's no scrolling through profiles. It's a matchmaking service. We work hard to find what it is that you are looking for and we take the time to get to know you. And there's a three week course that's included. You can learn more at venusconnections.com. Matchmaking for loving cuckolding relationships. Hi, Lisa, and welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. I'm so happy to be here. (laughs) I am so happy to have you here. Thank you for joining me. I've been a huge fan of you and your work for a very long time. And in fact, I see you as having been very instrumental in the development of my own career. And I can trace this back to the very first time I met you. It was at a psychology conference, and I had just seen you give a talk on your sexual fluidity research. And I was a very young graduate student at the time. And I had this question, but I was too timid to ask it during the Q&A portion. So I came up to you afterwards and I asked you whether you were concerned that people might misuse this research on sexual fluidity, because if people's sexual identities and attractions can shift over time, some people might interpret that as evidence that people can consciously choose to alter their sexual orientation. And your response to me was that you wake up every day worrying how people might misconstrue your work, but that even though there's that potential and that some LGBTQ folks might be uncomfortable with this concept of fluidity, you can't just sweep scientific findings under the carpet or pretend like they don't exist. Research results don't always validate our pre-existing beliefs. They sometimes make us uncomfortable and they have the potential to be misused. But as scientists, our goal is to seek and report the truth. And that was a really powerful message for me at that stage of my career. And it has shaped how I approach my own work ever since. So I just wanted to say thank you for that important bit of mentorship. That means a great, great deal to me. And, you know, one of the things that has been most satisfying about having a long career is having the ability to see people like you to be able to follow their career development from graduate school onward. Because when I was in graduate school, there were not very many people who were studying sexuality in graduate school. It was kind of a thing that people would wait to really study until they were safely ensconced in a faculty position. And I remember, you know, when I was a graduate student thinking, oh, it's got to, it's got to get better at some point. And so you were part of the first sort of generation that I observed. There was a crop, there was a 
a coming tide of sexual scientists in psychology who were likely to have more freedom to pursue that as a career than I felt like I had. And watching your career unfold over the years has been very reassuring for me. Like, <laughs> yes, the world progress is being made, you know? It, because when I got my job, you know, I remember being like, well, I can't supervise students who are going to study sexuality. I barely got a job. How can I, how can I tell someone else that this is a safe field to go into when it didn't quite feel like that? So I'm, I'm grateful for that. And, you know, the bad news is that the trauma over how your work will be misused never ends and does not go away. Yep. And I had the distinct pain of seeing my work be cited inappropriately in briefs submitted to the Supreme Court on the marriage equality case in 2015, that basically the conservative legal team that was writing the brief basically argued that if sexuality is fluid, well then LGBTQ or B, I guess in that case, just L and G because bisexuals were also completely erased in that discussion then they don't really exist as unique groups. So how can you say they're being discriminated against by, you know, by marriage laws if it's so ephemeral, if everybody's fluid? And I, you know, remember getting a copy of this from the, this, the legal team that was arguing on the right side. And they're like, do you want to comment on this? And I'm like, um, I want to vomit right now. I want to throw up, you know, this sense that my life's work was being turned against me and against every queer person, you know, in the world was a pretty problematic experience. And the thing is getting attacked or having my work misused by anti-gay folks doesn't make me any friend of anti-gay folks either. So I get hate mail from all sides and you know, I think what I told you that many years ago is true, but I don't think I anticipated the emotional toll that that takes. And that has been, I, I guess over the years, I thought maybe it would, I'm get hardened to it. And I think as I get older, I'm less hard to it. You mm. know, it's not easy to do no. this, but you know, someone has to. Someone has to. And it really <laughs> yeah. is important work. And I've seen a dramatic shift in how the public thinks about sexual orientation over the last decade because of your work on sexual fluidity. And I think in the beginning, the LGBTQ community, many folks were very uncomfortable with this concept for you know, precisely what we were talking about, that sexual fluidity might suggest that orientation is changeable and that we're not born this way and, and so forth. But I've seen growing acceptance of this idea that sexuality is fluid and more expansion of sexual identity labels and the way that people describe their experiences. And so I think even though you've endured a lot of terrible things in terms of the ways that people have misconstrued your work, it's also really helped a heck of a lot of people too. Thank you for saying that. And I try to remind myself of that when I have, you know, dark days. And it is kind of bizarre in retrospect, you know, when I think of what I faced, like the first couple of times I would start to present my work at conferences and people would be like, I don't know, you got a small sample. I think this is just like, I think it's just a sample thing. I think it's just your crazy little college aged this is not a thing, Diamond. This is just your little sample. But over the years, you know, all of the big federal studies started to add more questions about sexuality and gender. And so just over the years, I, I remember feeling so reassured when a lot of the ad health data started coming out. I'm like, it was not just my sample, folks. <laughs> like, you know, but in the early days, people were like, what? And it's funny, I, I was having dinner with a friend from high school a couple of years ago. I mean, you know, a friend that I had been deeply in love with, of course, but, you know, nothing ever came of that. And she now has, you know, two daughters. And one of them was 14 at the time. And 
you know, we're catching up and she's like, uh, by the way, uh, pretty much half of the girls in my daughter's class identify as sexually fluid. Can I blame you for this? <laughs> like, what have you done to, to, the, to my children? And I'm like, no, no, good, good luck with that. It was, <laughs> it was amazing to see that, wow, like now the younger generation just takes it for granted. They are like, you know, I don't want your labels. I don't want to cut, like everything is up for grabs. And they take for granted their right to kind of self-expression. And they don't have any of the hangups, or I, that's an overgeneralization. They have plenty of hangups. <laughs> they have slightly different hangups. And certainly they're not nearly as threatened by their own experiences of change as older generations have been because they've grown up with a different model of what is out there. You know, the fact that a that that you have 12-year-old kids who know what it means to be non-binary, it just blows my mind. Blows my mind. We have no idea what this generation is going to look like in 20 years. It's like the greatest mystery novel you've ever read. Yeah, you absolutely cannot predict the future with all of this. And I appreciate you sharing all of that. So let's talk a little bit about this idea of sexual fluidity, which, as we mentioned, refers to this capacity to experience unexpected shifts in your sexual identity and expression over time. And you conducted a landmark study on this where you followed dozens of women for over a decade, I believe, and found that many of them experienced these shifts in sexual attraction, behavior, and identity. And in that early work, you talked about sexual fluidity as being something that largely occurs in women. But you gave this amazing talk a few years after your book came out that was titled something like, I was, I was wrong. wrong. Men yep. are pretty darn sexually fluid too. And I love that title. And it was another important bit of informal mentorship that you gave me because I love when scientists can admit that they were wrong about something. And, you know, as, as you told me at that very early stage of my career, it's about seeking the truth and going where the evidence takes you and not just doing work that is designed to confirm your, your pre-existing beliefs. And in fact, one of my favorite science blogs is written by Samin Bazir and it's called Sometimes I'm Wrong. And I just, I love that approach. Like we have to recognize that we don't always know it all and that what we think we know might evolve and change over time in response to the evidence. So we now have this evidence that sexual fluidity happens across genders. So tell us a little bit about what does sexual fluidity look like and how common is it? So it's a lot more common than we think. And I think one of the longstanding questions that I still don't have the answer to is, is fluidity the norm or the exception? Mm -hmm. You know, is it, you know, for when I started doing work, it was like, oh, some people are fluid, but, you know, most people are not. And now it's like, maybe most people are fluid <laughs> and some people are strangely stable because we'll never really have the perfect data to answer this. And partly because everything is filtered through our own ability to report what we're experiencing. You know, I think the self, the, the reliance on self-report data is an ever-present problem in the entire field of psychology. And nowhere is it perhaps as pernicious as it when it comes to something that is complex, biopsychosexual, cultural, and also highly stigmatized and shamed. So it's like you couldn't design more of a like perfect storm of badness than mm -hmm. to have us as sexual scientists reliant on some of the most problematic type of data collection. So when we try to understand how common it is, there are so many problems that come into play. Uh, in terms of, well, who, who are we talking about? What's the relevant population? The U.S., the world, children, adults, older people, right? It, it quickly becomes clear that there is a lot of other dimensions of variation that we're not accustomed to really parsing when it comes to sexual desire and also our ever-present obsession with gender as the primary dimension of fluidity that we seem to be interested in, which stems directly 
from the very notion that sexual orientation is a gender-based orientation. Mm -hmm. And we, we have not done as good of a job. So when I started studying sexual fluidity, I was also coming from the same tradition of research on sexual orientation as everybody else. So I thought of the notion of orientation as a gender-based thing. I had not reached the more sophisticated awareness that I think all of us have reached. And I think Sari Bain Anders is probably, for me, the paradigmatic person who has studied this, where she talks about sexual configurations. Mm -hmm. And in her model, yeah, there's gender, but there's also preferences for partner number, preferences for nurturance, how much is nurturance a part of your sexuality? You could also say age, right? There are very strong preferences for age. Why don't we get obsessed about racial preferences, right? This a same race preference is pretty common around the world. And we don't obsess about that in the same way we obsess about gender. So I was just initially thinking, oh, you know, some people are oriented toward one gender and maybe they can feel it for the other gender. But once you really look more concretely at everything about sexual patterning, you, you quickly realize that, that gender is just one of many dimensions. And what the F is gender? Why do we even think about same gender and opposite gender? What, what does that mean? How can you have a, what, does, does a non-binary person have same gender attract? Like, what are we talking about? And so I kind of look at the history of my career and I, I see that I also was carrying with me a lot of the conventional blinders that the rest of society has. And what's been interesting is that in many ways, the, the sort of public commentary on my work has gotten kind of frozen in time at like, you know, 2006. So I still get cited, Lisa Diamond thinks that women are fundamentally different from men and they're more fluid. I'm like, no, I don't really think that anymore. Mm -hmm. And I'm not really sure what I mean, what you mean, or I mean by women or men or anything, but you know, it's like, that's, that's sort of where I've been uh, calcified in time. But I now look back on that work and I still see it as, as very much still a little bit stuck in a, an overly gender-focused and overly restrictive notion of what sexual orientation is. And so now I'm trying to kind of pull those threads apart a little bit more. And I don't know where that's going to be. <laughs> yeah, I, I think you raise a lot of important points. Like this question of what does sexual orientation even mean? And yes, historically, most people have defined it based on attraction centering around sex or gender or some combination of the two. I know Sari Van Anders uses the sex slash gender uh, terminology yeah. in a lot of her work. Because now we know that biological sex is not a thing. It's five things that kind of overlap. And so when we like even the idea of like there's sex and then there's gender, well, that doesn't work anymore. So a lot of the things that I think we all took for granted early on are now a little trickier. And I think the conversations that have, have emerged about gender fluidity have made our discussions of sexual fluidity more complicated in a really kind of delicious and delightful but confusing way. Yeah. And then there's that question of how do these gender-based attractions intersect with all of these other attractions that you mentioned? And I think that's where Michael Seto's work has been really valuable, where he's tried to expand this definition, this idea of sexual orientation to say that we all have multiple orientations and you can have mm -hmm. age-based orientations, gender-based orientations, species-based orientations. You know, there's all kinds of ways that you can think about this, but that's also proving incredibly controversial. <laughs> of course. Of course. I mean, the strongest, you know, it's interesting because there is way stronger empirical evidence for stable 
enduring and immutable age preferences in sexuality than there is for gender preferences. Yep. If you want a population who appears to want the same thing consistently, wherever they go, where, you know, at whatever part of history, at whatever culture they're in, age preferences, basically that stable. And yet we don't think of it as an orientation. We think of it as a pathology. And yet if you want, you know, if you think about the criteria that we use scientifically to establish something as a stable orientation, you know, all of those measures work way better for pedophilia and hemophilia than they do for, you know, androphilia and gynophilia mm -hmm. and biphilia. So I think we have managed to put gender-based orientations into a separate little box as if they are something altogether different from any other sexual preferences that we might experience. And it's like, what, where did that come from? And I think it just reflects those sort of historical and cultural forces that, you know, well, this was what was meaningful in our culture. Mm -hmm. So let's just invest in that. But it's, it's increasingly um, hard to argue that that's the main thing going on. Yeah. And then there's also this issue of sexual orientation and how it's taken on so much personal and political meaning. And I think that's where the controversy comes in when it comes to expanding what we consider to be a sexual orientation, because, you know, we've most closely associated sexual orientation with LGBTQ, and that's now a protected group in a lot of ways. And, and the attitudes there have changed. And so the concern with applying the term sexual orientation to something like pedophilia is that people think that that will somehow legitimize that or make it seem like it's okay. And it's not. Which has always been the argument. I mean, Anita Bryant back in the 60s said homosexuals cannot create their own children. Therefore, they must recruit from your children. So that link between a sexual orientation regarding gender and the predation of children was made in the 1960s and we've never been able to escape it. And there's always this, and it's the same old conservative argument. If you let people have sex with whoever they want, then people will have sex with animals and children and, you know, robots or whatever. And so in, in many ways, that argument is the more progressive queer theory argument. In other words, once you start questioning societal rules and boundaries about sexuality, where does it end? Mm -hmm. What is permissible and what is not? And they're right. You know, that's what we're not allowed to say to them. Is it going to be polygamy next? And it's like, well, actually, in the state of Utah, that happened. The otherwise highly conservative, restrictive Utah legislature ended up decriminalizing polygamy, polygamy in the context of non-marital cohabitation, because polygamy had always been illegal. You know, it's, it's illegal in most states, but the problem in Utah is that first, there, there are a lot of fundamentalist Mormons who practice plural marriage. These are not legal marriages. They are just marriages in practice where people are cohabitating with multiple wives. Well, even that, was criminalized in Utah. And the advocates for decriminalization partnered up with the LGBTQ community, talk about strange bedfellows, to argue, hey, who you choose to live with and sleep with are personal choices. And if you're just doing this in your own life and you're not asking the government for it, why should it be me? And it's a, an excellent argument, right? And so it is true that once you start opening the door for true, you know, erotic liberation, the conservatives are right. You could say, well, I don't know where that ends. It maybe it's maybe it's not just about gender. And that has always been a tension in, I think, you know, queer and trans and all progressive communities, because on one hand, we want to say, oh, come on, you're just making a scare argument. On the other hand, we're like, oh, it's a good point. <laughs> Why shouldn't we all be able to do what we want? Uh, what is the boundary? Why is it 
is it okay to be disgusted by one person's sexual attractions and not disgusted by another? Like, where does BDSM fit in? Where do you, you know, what, what do we actually mean by sexual diversity and asexuality? You know, the, the kind of growing unfolding of asexuality and aromantic orientations. So the truth is that the conservatives are right in that once you start down that slippery slope, you're on a water slide. And, you know, some of us think it's a fun water slide and others find it terrifying, especially parents. And I understand that. Yep. Yeah. And that issue of where do you draw the boundary is something that has come up in my own, you know, sexual fantasy research. You know, when does a fantasy become dangerous? When does a desire become dangerous? And, you know, it's really kind of the best answer I can give to that is you have to draw the boundary with consent and then also with the unacceptable risk of harm. But that unacceptable risk of harm part is totally subjective because people have a different risk tolerance. And so what is an unacceptable risk of harm? And there's always some level of risk inherent in any sexual activity. And so these things do become somewhat murky and it's, you know, hard to say these very definitive things about this. So, you know, I appreciate you bringing all of this up and it's, it's a lot of food for thought, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's unresolvable. It's truly unresolvable, but I do think that when we engage with conservative opposition to sexual diversity, I think that one of the things that we have done wrong is by tacking to a very essentialist notion of sexual orientation in order to get us out of that word. Mm -hmm. What we've said is, oh my gosh, that's a ridiculous argument because sexual orientation is not like pedophilia. It's not like preferences for this. It is a different thing. And if you open up the floodgates for, for gay and lesbian and bisexual expression, it will not have any effect on any other form of, of diverse sexual expression, it's okay. It's a different thing. And we make that argument over and over again. And we know that we're lying because it's not that it's wrong. It's that we don't freaking know. We, we say that as if we know that for sure. We don't know. That's a, it's a, it's an empirical question, but we tap to a very essentialist notion about gender-based attractions in order to avoid getting into a much more uncomfortable debate about other undesirable patterns of attraction. And it's the wrong way to go. I mean, it just leads us down an essentialist rabbit hole that we can't empirically or theoretically support anymore. Yeah. And I remember you gave an important TED Talk, I believe, a few years ago about why the born this way argument is not the way that we should go in terms of arguing for LGBTQ rights, because ultimately it's it's kind of based on a house of cards, right? Because we mm -hmm. don't know and fully understand where all of these things come from. And if we later find with research that, you know, it's not supporting that born this way idea or something else, then it all falls down. So it, it's that essentialist approach. We're giving the opposition, like all the data's out there. Yeah. They can pull that house of cards down with a puff. And on top of the fact that it's inaccurate, you know, as I make, as the argument I'm making that TED talk, it's also just, it really throws bisexuals and all people with more diverse patterns of sexual expression, it just throws them under the bus. It says, you don't count. You're embarrassing us. You're not a real queer person. It's like that old stereotype from the 70s and 80s of the gold star lesbian, which mm -hmm. was a lesbian who had never had sex with a man, that that somehow a better type of lesbian, a more authentic type of lesbian. And the poo-pooing of bisexuality and the distrust of bisexuality, you know, that the born that way argument, you know, just sort of tries to make a political progress on the backs of a very large segment of human beings who are living the complexity of their sexual selves. And that's just, that's just politically, like an ethically wrong. Yeah. 
And I'm glad you brought up the gold star thing because I still hear people use that a lot today. You know, a lot of people talk about being a gold star gay and then now there's this additional level. You can be a platinum star gay if you were a C-section baby who, you know, never came in contact with a vagina while you were being born and then you've never had contact with a vagina in your life. And like, wow, that is that is some misogyny. That is like serious misogyny right there. Hatred of the vagina. Oh, my God. I know. And it's it's something that people just throw around very casually. But it is like it's it's hateful. Right. It's very anti-woman. And it's like, why? Are we celebrating that? Why is that considered to be okay to say? Uh, I mean, I think it's, you know, one of the things that I say to my students when they, you know, ask me about these things is I say, you know, we have to remember that as sexual scientists, we're trying to sort of, you know, study this phenomenon that, that has scientific parameters, but it is also a deeply personal phenomenon that all of us observe and individuals feel connected to their identities for deeply personal reasons that are not invalid and they are important. And so I think that because the you know queer and trans communities historically have come together on the basis of shared experience, people get really tense when they find big disjunctures within that shared experience. Like, you're a queer, I'm queer, but wait a second, you're really different from me. And it's like, well, of course, there's diversity in the community, but because we created the community on the basis of shared oppression and shared experience, oh my God, when I was a kid, I thought I was different. So did I, right? Those are important uh, bases for connection, community, solidarity. For many of us, it got us through to see ourselves and to see our experiences mirrored in others. But as the community grows in visibility and we see all the diversity, it makes sense that some of that diversity is threatening because we base the community on a weeness, a sharedness that breaks down if you look too closely at it. And it's really no different than what you see in any other civil rights movement. You see the same thing with regard to race and the the colorism within a lot of ethnic communities about who is a more authentic member of the community who has, you know, skin color or features that mark you as having had less intermarriage in your ethnic history. That happens. There's the same tension within disability communities. The the people who were born with disabilities versus people who developed disabilities later in life, that's an issue. So it sometimes reassures me to remember that this sort of struggle is truly no different than than what goes on in almost any marginalized community that comes together around a shared experience of oppression and marginalization. Those tensions about who's in, who's out, what category are you in? Are you with me or are you against me? That has been going on since the beginning of time. And so it's not unique to sexuality. I think it takes on additional fervor because we feel sexuality so deep in ourselves and we all carry so much sexual shame about it that those feelings of difference we turn into judgment more rapidly like oh i'm different i'm weird i'm bad and that sense when it comes to sexuality is so difficult to dislodge that I think that's why it tends to take on more emotional fervor than it does for other groups Yeah. And something else here specifically about the LGBTQ community is that this community has grown in size considerably over time. If you look at the most recent Gallup poll data on what percentage of Americans identify as LGBTQ, if you look at the youngest Americans, the youngest adults, 18 to 24, 16% of them identify as LGBTQ, which is a massive increase from previous years where, you know, a decade before that, it was closer to five to 6% or so. And so, you know, that's going to be another issue going forward is that as more people identify as members of this community, keeping all of the same shared interests and goals and values, it, it's going to be harder to to stick together as a group. Because when it was a smaller, tighter knit community, and I think people were 
a little bit more on the same page in the past in terms of what they wanted. And they've achieved some of those goals like marriage equality, but now the goalposts have shifted, the size of the community has expanded. And so, you know, I hate to make predictions about the future because we never know where the future of sex and gender and all these things are going to go. But I anticipate that there's going to be even more tension in part as a result of that growth in the community. I 100% agree. I think it is inevitable. I think it is inevitable. And the simple fact that that population is growing, I find to be kind of a hilarious thing. Like when I, you know, I I often give talks where I'm like, okay, true or false. Yeah. Are, are there, are there more queers now than before? Or are more queers just being open about it than before? And everybody knows what the socially acceptable answer is. The socially acceptable answer is, oh, no, there's always a fixed number of queers because it's just, a, you know, it's a form of human diversity. But now we're simply more aware of it because of the visibility. And I'm like, yeah, that's reasonable. No, I think you're wrong. I think we've actually, we're making more. We're making more queers because the moment you start exposing individuals to possibilities, well, there is a basic degree of flexibility in the human species. Our sexuality systems evolved to be flexible. That's a part of what makes us unique as humans. So if you expose people to more options, they're going to develop desires that they did not have before. And so therefore, the conservatives are right. The more we talk about queer issues, the more kids see queer characters on TV, the more kids will become queer. Like, yes, everything you're fearing is true. We are making more of them every day. And yeah, and then that the question is, is that right or wrong? Like I say, it's great. You know, I say the more the better. But that is an argument that you cannot safely make to school districts who are debating over whether to include you know, any discussion of, you know, sexuality. Like my sister is a second grade teacher in the Burbank public school system. So it's a public school. They have a social studies text for, you know, seven-year-olds that profiles some famous people in history. And they included a profile of Sally Ride and they included a profile of Harvey Milk. And they described Sally Ride as the first woman and the first lesbian in space. And I was like, wow, good for them. Well, the parents started emailing my sister saying, I think it's wrong for seven-year-olds to be forced to think of sexual practices when they're reading their social studies textbook. and." My sister and her principal, who, you know, is the ones who chose the book, said, we do not think that by describing Sally Ride as a lesbian, we are not forcing individuals to think of sexual practices. And the parents said, yes, you are, because the definition of a lesbian is a woman who has sex with women. So therefore, you cannot talk about someone being a lesbian without forcing the children to think about sexual practices. And I'm like, has anyone informed this person that you know, every single children's book shows moms and dads raising kids. And, you know, you could easily say, oh, every time you have a mother and a father in any children's story, you're forcing that child to think about penis and vagina sex, because if there's a mother and a father, there's a penis and a vagina. Oh my God. Right. So we apply such a different standard to information, you know, based, you know, about sexual diversity. And so yeah, it becomes a very fraught conversation. Is it possible that some of the seven-year-olds in my sister's class will come out, you know, because they started thinking about Sally Ride, you know, having sex with women in space? Maybe. And is that a bad thing? I don't think so, but certainly these parents would disagree. And that's the real, you know, that's the central drama. Some people are in favor of sexual diversity and some people are not. And that's just, you know, full stop right there. Yeah, that is the central conflict. Now, we have much more to discuss, including gender fluidity and how it intersects with sexual fluidity. And we're going to get into all of that right after this short break. 
Have you ever wanted to get into the world of podcasting? If so, you need the best recording program out there, which is why I use Zencaster. Sign up today for a free two-week trial and use my exclusive discount code, SEXANDPSYCH, P-S-Y-C-H, to save 40% off their professional plan. Visit Zencaster.com to learn more. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R.com. Looking for a boost in the bedroom? Our friends at Promescent have you covered. Their line of sexual wellness products includes their signature delay spray to help men last longer in bed, a female arousal gel, Vitaflux supplements, massage oils, condoms, and so much more. Permescent offers a 60-day money-back guarantee, free shipping on orders over $10, and discreet packaging to guarantee privacy. Learn more and place your order at promescent.com. That's P-R-O-M-E-S-C-E-N-T.com. And we're back. Let's talk about this idea of gender fluidity, which I know you've researched as well. And for people who aren't familiar with this term of gender fluidity, what exactly does it mean and how is it similar to or different from being non-binary or transgender? All of the terms are under debate and ever-changing. So I think part of the issue is that we are still in very early days of, of solid, rigorous empirical research on this area. and so. Almost every single peer-reviewed article you find uses different terms, uses different definitions, has different criteria. And then when you go to actual individual people, they have their own terms, which may not match with what the scientists call it. And it's, it's a complete um, uh, delicious mess. <laughs> so what, you know, it's, you can sort of look at the evolution of thinking on this as a sort of parallel to the evolution of thinking on sexual orientation, when people were thinking of sexual orientation as homosexual or heterosexual, they were thinking about gender identity in terms of transsexual and everybody else. And the only form of transgender experience that really got a lot of discussion or coverage were transsexual women, specifically, who were assigned male at birth, wanted to pursue a full legal and physical transition to a female identity. And over the years, just as there started to become cracks in that very rigid categorical notion of, of trans experience, which was all based on the gender binary, on the idea that there are two and only two, cracks started to appear. You started to see discussions of transgender, you know, in the, around the, the 90s and into the 2000s. But even so, it was still pretty much based on you have one gender identity. At some point, you switch to another. And over the years, there have kind of bubbled up in more public awareness and public identification individuals who may not feel that their gender identity aligns with their birth assigned sex or gender, but who don't necessarily want to transition or don't want to transition all the way, or they experience their gender as being multiple or complex or changing or oscillating. And so exactly the same critiques that have been made of the earlier literature on social orientation now apply completely to the literature on gender identity. And in the same way that we had a very either-or notion about homosexual versus heterosexual, and we couldn't even imagine bisexuality for very many years, and some people still can't, we had a very binary notion of trans and cis, and there was nothing else. And now we're finding that among, like there was one study that found that in individuals over the age of 30, surveys that allowed people to adopt kind of non-binary and gender fluid identities, around 60% of folks who identified as trans identified as sort of a binary trans. And then uh, the rest of them identified as non-binary, non-binary gender fluid. Among individuals younger than 22, it's the reverse. The majority of individuals who think of themselves as trans at all think of themselves as either non-binary, gender fluid, or, or something that challenges the notion of two and only two genders. So we are going through a huge historical shift because we're realizing that, you know, we take 
our identities as men and women from what the culture makes available to us when we're growing up. This is, you know, our brains come wired to accept what the culture gives us. And when the culture gives us gender categories, we say, yay, let's absorb that. The culture is changing and the availability of gender categories is changing. And so people are having more opportunities to experience other forms of gender-based identification. And it's not an elimination of gender. You know, I, I, some people are like, why is gender disappearing? I'm like, it's not disappearing. It's just proliferating. And let many flowers bloom. There's diversity in gender, just the same way there was diversity in sexual desire. And so we're seeing new subcategories crop up, some of which overlap and some of which don't. There are some non-binary folks who say that that their version of being non-binary is to not feel strongly tied to either gender. And there are some non-binary folks who say, no, I feel strongly attached to both. And that fits exactly with what we see with bisexuality. There's some bisexuals who say, I am strongly attracted to feminine gender presentations and strongly attracted to, to male gender. I, I'm strongly attracted to both. And there are some bisexuals who are like, I don't even see gender. I don't notice it. They both may have the same identity, but they experience their desires in a very different way. Exactly the same thing applies to gender. Gender for some individuals is a deeply felt and embodied characteristic. For others, eh, not so much. And we're only beginning to come up with the terms to represent that. You know, I have a, uh, a graduate student, a non-binary graduate student. You know, it's, it's just been delightful to sort of enter into this line of research with someone who is a safe person for me to say, like, what's the right way for us to even be doing this? Like, is, you know, what kind of language is hurtful or harmful? Because it's been an education for me because I was raised in a different era and it's, and I've had to really learn a lot. And when we, in, in the survey, you know, research that we do, like when we developed the place where people could describe their gender identity there's like 25 categories mm-hmm. and then an open into the link please explain what you mean by this because that's kind of where we're at we are in this stage where we don't even really know the right terms to use being fluid and changeable in your gender may correspond with having a non-binary sense of gender and it not mm-hmm. so we we don't know We don't know what we're doing. We're just trying to figure out, you know, what it is. But it is really posing a challenge to the way the medical establishment views gender. And I think one of the trickier things about talking about gender fluidity is that unlike sexual orientation, individuals who are questioning their gender or who are trying to pursue you know, a greater sense of coherence in their own gender often have a lot more interactions with the medical establishment than you would need to have for sexual orientation. So that introduces a lot more opportunities for shame, guilt, power, control, institutional, you know, divide who gets to have hormones and who doesn't, having to jump through different hoops qualify to receive certain forms of treatment. So one of the things that makes it very different is that individuals who are on that spectrum of gender fluidity usually end up having more direct contact with hateful and oppressive institutions than do queer people. And that is a huge problem. Yeah. Thank you for sharing all of that. And I think it really does highlight how difficult it is to do research in this area, because when you look at the past research, it is all over the place in terms of how they've even assessed something like gender, you know, and in some studies, they are assessing sex, and they only give people a binary choice to choose from others are not assessing sex, and they're assessing gender, some are assessing both, they're asking different questions. And you see the same thing with sexual orientation, you know, the way it's assessed is going to affect the responses that you get. And so it can be really hard to look across studies, there's no standardized measure or instrument for sexual orientation or gender. And so people are 
oftentimes just kind of making it up as they go along. And everyone does something slightly different. And you see this a lot. You know, we we did a big review of health disparities in sexually diverse and gender diverse populations. And as we worked through all these big, you know, representative data sets, everyone seemed to handle it differently. And then some of them just didn't even have an option. It was just male, female. And so we had this standard sentence we kept having to cut and paste. Only two options were allowed in this case. So we don't know. We just don't know who's yeah. in this sample. And that is the ever-present problem. It's like, if you don't have the language, you don't know what you have. And so when people say, well, how common is, gen- how common is this? It's like, well... Until we ask the right questions, we're never going to freaking know. But it's certainly more common than we think because the way that we have asked the question has tended to make invisible a lot of the diversity that's out there. And, you know, it's going to be a slow process to get some of those big federal data sets to improve. I know that the Behavioral Risk Vector Surveillance System added questions about gender identity around 2014, but it made it optional. So states, individual states could choose whether or not to include those questions. And so then whenever you see studies that use the behavioral respector surveillance system, and they're, you know, some of them use one state, some of them will use another. And you're like, well, you know, it's up to that state whether they want, you know, that, that depart, the Department of Health in the state of Utah versus the state of California. So we're collecting different data in every place on the planet, and we have no idea what's actually out there. Yeah. Now, I know this is a messy research area for the reasons we've just discussed. Different people are assessing things in different ways. Some aren't assessing things like sexual and gender fluidity at all. But I'm curious, what do we know about how sexual fluidity and gender fluidity intersect? And so is it the case that some people are just more fluid across all of these different categories? And maybe they also experience fluidity in in other ways when it comes to sex, for example, in terms of desired partner number or amount of nurturance that they might need is so is fluidity really a broader trait that some people have what, what do we know about okay, that this, this is like you have just very nicely articulated what i think is the single most interesting question in this field because you're absolutely right once you start opening up the notion of fluidity to include gender fluidity and they're like hmm, how are those related they're both like and then it's like, well, what about, what about people who were not into BDSM in their 20s and develop, you know, an orientation toward, is that, does that count? What exactly? So, you know, I have gotten more into neuroscience over the years. And, you know, the more you delve into that literature, and also I do a lot of work in evolutionary psychology. The hallmark of the human species is neuroplasticity. That is the single biggest difference between us and our closest primate relatives is our sensitivity to environmental input and the capacity for environmental input to literally rewire the way that we experience the world. And so I do think that these things have something to do with our broader capacity for plasticity. Now, are some individuals more plastic in multiple ways than others? Yes. And in fact, some of the strongest research on this is some research done by one of my colleagues, uh, Bruce Ellis, who in his collaborations with uh, Tom Boyce, and there's a great book called The Orchid and the Dandelion, which I highly recommend, just written for a more general audience. And they have studied sort of the ways in which our human plasticity can sometimes be fostered and nurtured by early adversity. And that part of the human condition, you know, in our ancestral environment back in the Pleistocene era, We had much more dangerous lives than we do now. And 
turns out that the human nervous system is, you know, when you, that baby comes out of the womb, you know, babies come out of the womb for humans when they're still pretty much uncooked. And the rate of change in neural connections for children is so dramatic and so exponential. We are literally born like sponges and we are taking in everything, every bit of input we can get. One of the pieces of input that we get first is whether we're safe, whether we have nurturance available to us. And when individuals are not safe, their stress sensitivity systems are calibrated to kind of a high level of reactivity, which makes sense. If the world is dangerous and unpredictable, then you have to be able to respond to environmental changes lightning quick. So individuals who are exposed to a lot of early adversity are more reactive to negative things. But aha, and this was Bruce Ellison's great discovery, they're also more sensitive to positive things. Mm. That sensitivity goes both ways. We're used to thinking of, you know, kids at risk. And, and Ellis says, you know, that's a deficit model that's saying, oh, you had early adversity. You're going to be more sensitive to bad things. And what he found is those same folks who are more sensitive to bad things are also more sensitive to good things. They're more sensitive to everything. He calls them orchids. They're orchid kids. They are going to need, and the comparison is the dandelion. Dandelions crop up everywhere. They've had a kind of moderate level of childhood experience. They're going to generally be fine. And you don't even need to water a dandelion. It's going to grow anywhere. Orchids are very beautiful, but they need a lot of care. If they get the support and the nurturance they need, you will get an extraordinary bloom. But it, because they're just more sensitive. If, if the, if the weather's not right, they're not going to grow right. If the weather's good, they're going to be perfect, right? So I think that those individual differences in orchidness may be related to both gender and sexual fluidity and other forms of fluidity that if some individuals, and it looks like there may be both genetic and environmental influences here, but are some individuals just more plastic? Yeah. And they appear to take in more of their environment than other folks. So in my sort of understanding, as those individuals, as the orchid individuals encounter more information like, oh, I could have this or I could have that. Do I want that? What would that be like? They appear to be better able, like they're more like sponges. They take in stuff. And they are more reactive and more flexible and adaptable. And that is, I mean, the reason they're like that is because in the ancestral environment, that was a survival adaptation. If the environment is unpredictable, you need to be able to pivot. You need to be able to take in input and adjust. And so that plasticity is a human strength, not a weakness and not a deficit. And some of the work that Bruce Ellis is doing is trying to kind of use this for educational context. So, for example, orchid kids may need different environmental contexts to succeed in school, right? They, you know, the, the standard way of teaching folks, sit them down on a thing, maybe that's not going to work for an orchid kid. And if we can treat the distinctions between orchids and dandelions as something to be celebrated and that we can... We can design things that allow the plastic folks to really thrive if we give them what they need. So I do think there is something different about more plastic people. And I think it's a strength and not a weakness. That is fascinating. And I could listen to you talk about that all day because it's got my mind spinning and going in a lot of different directions because this idea of plasticity and the individual differences and where that comes from. I think we definitely need a lot more work on that going forward because it might be the key to understanding a lot of this. Thank you for sharing all of that and for giving all of us so much to think about. And thank you too for all of the important research you've done. It was a pleasure to have you here today to talk about all of this. Can you please tell my listeners where they can go if they want to learn more about you and to get a copy of your books? Uh, my website is horribly out of date. That was one of my 
pandemic tasks was to make it better. And I have not yet done that. So there's some stuff up there, but not that much. I don't know. You can just email me and I'll get in touch. Well, thank you again for your time. I really appreciate having you here. Also, thank you to my listeners to keep up with new episodes of the podcast. You can visit my website, Sex and Psychology at sexandpsychology.com or subscribe on your favorite platform where I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the show. You can also follow me on social media for daily sex research updates. I'm on Twitter at Justin Lay Miller and Instagram at Justin J. Lay Miller. Also, be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What You Want, and be sure to Google Lisa Diamond, Utah. Well, thank you again, Lisa, and thank you everyone for listening. Until next time.